Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace theology segment. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show and on today's episode, a listener writes in and they have a great question and the question is, what is Eastern Orthodox? Well, the Eastern Orthodox Church is somewhat unknown to the Western world in which Protestantism and Catholicism are the predominant Christian denominations. In the teaching of Orthodoxy, the Eastern Orthodox Church is the authentic continuation of the original church established by the apostles shortly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to discover the history, the beliefs, the modern adherence of Eastern Orthodoxy, and why it claims to be the one true apostolic Christian church. And we're also going to contrast that with what Reformed theology says about it. So here's a brief overview. The Orthodox Church views itself as the one church established by Jesus Christ and by his apostles begun at the day of Pentecost with the descent of the Holy Spirit in the year 33 A.D., It's also known, particularly in the modern Western world, as the Eastern Orthodox Church. The bishops of the Orthodox churches draw continuous succession to the very apostles themselves, hence ultimately receiving their consecrations from our Lord Jesus. All the bishops of the Eastern Orthodox churches, regardless of their titles, are equal in their office. And so the numerous titles given to bishops are simply administrative or their honors in their meaning. At an academical council, each bishop may cast only one vote, whether they're uh, a patriarch or an auxiliary bishop without a diocese or a parish. And thus, there is no equivalent to the Roman Catholic popedom within the Eastern Orthodox Church. As with its apostolic succession, the faith held by the church is that which was given to Christ to the apostles. Nothing is added to or withheld from that foundation of faith which was handed down to the, to the church uh, once and for all to the saints, as Jude 3 says. Now, throughout history, multiple heresies have troubled the church, and at those points, the church makes dogmatic declarations, especially at the councils, outlining in new language what has always been believed by the church, thus limiting the spread of heresy and calling to repentance those who suffer apart from the body of Christ. Its primary statement of faith is the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. The following is an excerpt from the Orth Wiki of the history of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth and founded the church through his apostles and disciples for the salvation of man. In the years which followed, the apostles spread the church and its teachings and founded many churches, all united in faith, worship, and the partaking of the mysteries, or as they were called in the West, the sacraments of the Holy Church. The churches founded by the apostles themselves include the Patricites of Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Rome, and Constantinople. The Church of Alexandria was founded by St. Mark. The Church of Antioch by St. Paul. The Church of Jerusalem by St. Peter's and James. The Church of Rome by St. Peter and Paul, or St. Andrew, excuse me. Those founded in later years throughout the missionary activity of the first churches were the churches of Sinai, Russia, Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania, and many others. 
Now, each church has always had independent administration, but with the exception of the Church of Rome, which finally separated from the others in the year 1054. Are united in faith, doctrine, apostolic traditions, sacraments, liturgies, and services. Together they constitute what is called the Orthodox Church, literally meaning right teaching or right worship, derived from two Greek words, orthos, right, and doxa, teaching or worship. And so the Eastern, or excuse me, the Orthodox Church proclaims to stand in direct continuity with the earliest Christian communities founded in regions of the Eastern Mediterranean by the apostles of the Lord Jesus. Now, the destiny of Christianity in those areas was shaped by the transfer in 320 AD of the imperial capital from Old Rome to New Rome, Constantinople by Constantine. As a consequence, during the first eight centuries of church history, most major cultural, intellectual, and even social developments in the Christian church also took place in that region. For instance, all the councils of that period met either in or near Constantinople. Missionaries coming from Constantinople converted the Slavs and other people of the Eastern Europe to Christianity, those in Bulgaria in 864 and Russia in 988 AD, and translated scripture and liturgical texts into the vernacular and languages used in various regions around that area of the world. Thus, the liturgy, the traditions, the practice of the Church of Constantinople were adopted by all and still provide the basic patterns of contemporary orthodoxy in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, developments were not always consistent with the evolution of Western Christianity, where the Bishop of Rome or Pope came to be considered the successor of the Apostle Peter and the head of the Universal Church by divine appointment. Eastern Christians were willing to accept the Pope only as the first among the patriarchs. This difference explains the various incidents that grew into a serious estrangement. Now, one of the most vehement disputes concerned the Philoque Clause of the Nicene Creed, which, according to some, the Western Church added unilaterally to the original text. Now, the schism came slowly. The first major breach came in the 9th century when the Pope refused to recognize the election of Photius as the Patriarch of Constantinople. Photius, in turn, challenged the right of the papacy to rule on the matter and denounced the Philoque Clause as a Western innovation. Now, the growing disputes between the East and the rest, they reached another peak in 1054 AD when, it, when mutual anathemas were exchanged. The sacking of Constantinople by the Fourth Crusade in 1204 AD intensified Eastern hostility towards the West. Attempts at reconciliation at the Council of Lyon in 1274 AD and Florence in 1438 through 39 AD were unsuccessful. And when the papacy defined itself as infallible, for example, as a first Vatican council in 1870 AD, the gulf uh, between East and West grew wider. Only, se- only since the second Vatican council in 1962 through 1965 has the movement reversed. Now talks are bringing serious attempts at mutual understanding. So, the Eastern Orthodox Church accepts as authoritative the resolutions of the seven economical councils that met between 325 and 787 AD and established the basic teachings on the Trinity and the Incarnation. 
In the later centuries, Orthodox councils also made doctrinal determinations on, of Greece in uh, 1341 A.D. and 1351 A.D. and took a stand in reference to Western teachings. Now, the Church continues the early traditions of Christianity as babies receive the Eucharist in confirmation and the episcopate and the priesthood are understood in the light of the apostolic succession. Apostolic succession is recognized to be a continuation of the holy tradition by right-believing bishops. Both married men and monks may, may become priests, but priests, bishops, and monks may not marry. The veneration of Mary as Theokotos, the mother of God, is central to Orthodox incarnational theology, and the intercession of the saints is also emphasized in the Orthodox holy tradition. Now, after an early controversy on the subject, the icons of Christ, the Virgin Mary, and the saints are now seen as visible witnesses to the fact that God has taken human flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the liturgy used by the Orthodox Church has been translated from Greek into many languages. It is always sung, not just spoken. The faithful receive holy communion on a spoon. They are given the consecration bread and the sanctified wine for the gifts offered and sanctified at the great divine liturgy. Holy communion is never taken from any reserve. Monasticism, which had its origin in the Christian East in Egypt, Syria, and Cappadocia, has since been considered in the Eastern Orthodox Church as a prophetic ministry of men and women showing through their mode of life the action of the Holy Spirit. The monastic republic of Mount Athos in Greece is still viewed among the Orthodox Christians as a center of spiritual vitality. And now some of this came from the beliefs and practices of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, the most common estimate of the number of Orthodox Christians worldwide is between 225 and 300 million individuals. Other assessments, such as the Encyclopedia of the Developing World, place the amount of overall Orthodox adherence in, in 1996 at 182 million individuals, including the following. In the Russian Federation, 70 to 80 million. In Ukraine, close to 30 million. In Romania, close to 20 million. In Greece, 9.5 million. In the United States, close to 7 million. In Serbia and Montenegro, close to 7 million. In Bulgaria, 6 million. In Belarus, 5 million. In Kazakhstan, 4 million. In Moldavia, 3 million. Georgia, 2.8 million. Northern Macedonia, 1.2 million. In Uzbekistan, 900,000. In Poland, 800,000. In Germany, 550,000. In Australia, 480,000. In the United Kingdom, 440,000. In Latvia, 400,000. In Estonia, 300,000. In France, 260,000. In Lithuania, 150,000. In Austria, about 70,000. In Switzerland, about 70,000. In Finland, about uh, 56,000. So smells and bells and ancient chants and priests with long robes and beards, people crossing themselves and kissing icons in an atmosphere filled with an air of antiquity and apparent changelessness. That is what one observes upon first sight in their first encounter in the Eastern Orthodox Church. A sense that they are visiting an exotic country or to use the expression of an eminent Orthodox theologian, a new and unknown world. And there's several ways to answer the question. Why then should we bother answering or talking about the Eastern Orthodox Church? And one is that Eastern Orthodoxy is either the primary or significant religious context for many countries of the world. From Russia to Greece and from Ethiopia to Egypt, 
evangelical believers engage daily with some form of Eastern Orthodoxy. And it is therefore important to know more about it for the sake of our mission and for ministry reasons. And the influence of Eastern Orthodoxy is not only defined by geography in the context of a call for retrieval of the great tradition and as a reaction to some of the shortcomings of evangelicalism, many evangelicals have turned East, meaning they have become Eastern Orthodox. Concepts like theosis, the process by which humans are united to God, to give an example, are becoming quite popular even among evangelicals. As one Orthodox scholar observes, Orthodox theology has developed from an unknown commodity into a respectable minority theology. However, it is often the case that evangelicals approach it in a piecemeal and a fragmentary fashion, not taking the entirety of it into consideration. And so it's important for theological reasons to study this tradition in a more holistic way. And finally, one last reason that we simply cannot ignore an ancient Christian tradition. No matter our disagreements, which at times are profound, we need to approach it with humility as we consider other important concerns and emphasis that Eastern Orthodoxy may have preserved and that we may have either lost or not been attentive to. And so we need to ask another question, as we have been throughout this show. What then is Eastern Orthodoxy? And due to the limitation of space, and that I try to keep this to about 15 to 20 minutes, we're going to focus briefly on the heart and the center of Eastern Orthodox theology and practice. And yet, before we talk about this, there's an important clarification that needs to be made, which is that the Eastern Orthodox are not Roman Catholics. The fact that both have priests wearing robes and follow high liturgical rites does not mean that they're the same. And so it's wrong to project onto them what we know about the Roman Catholic Church. With this clarification in mind, let us proceed to describe what uh, we believe is at the core of Eastern Orthodoxy, namely their doctrine of the Church. Bolkov, a prominent Orthodox theologian, starts his book, The Orthodox Church, with a chapter on the Church. He opens by stating that Orthodoxy is the Church of Christ on earth. We need to bear in mind that according to this approach, there is no real distinction between a visible and an invisible aspect of the church, which is a departure from biblical Reformation theology. For the Orthodox, the visible manifestation of the church is the only expression of it. And thus they believe that they are the the one holy Catholic apostolic church the Eastern Orthodox Church does. Now, the adjective apostolic here carries a very specific meaning in this context. It does not simply refer to the church that was founded by the apostles or is grounded in the apostolic teaching. It means that they are literal and actual successors of the apostles by virtue of tracing a line of bishops back to the area of the church fathers. This contrasts with the Reformation understanding that being apostolic means adhering to the apostolic teachings contained in the Word of God. Bolkoff explains, After the apostles, the communication of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church became the prerogative of the hierarchy, that is, of the episcopate, with its presbyters and deacons. This orthodox understanding can be observed in the ways various theological topics revolve around how the church functions. First, let's consider the issue of revelation and authority. For the Eastern Orthodox Church, the church is a depository of truth and dogma. She is the possessor of the living tradition as the Holy Spirit moves and works in her. So for them, the dichotomy of Scripture and tradition does not make very much sense. This is because Scripture is seen as tradition, that is, as part of the tradition of the church. 
Bokov even speaks of the church as tradition. The, the church knows the truth and has a correct dogma, which she expresses in her, uh, her proclamation when it is needed and through various means. The Orthodox believe that this living tradition, which in a mystical way resides in the church and has been articulated and expressed in things like the Bible, the decrees of the economical councils, litur- liturgical texts and hymns, the writings of the early church fathers, and even in the icons, a topic which would require us to talk at length about so we don't even have time in this short show. But the churches act also central in the Orthodox understanding of the doctrine of salvation. Salvation of them is actualized and pursued only in the context of the church. St. Cyprian, a third century bishop, famously said, No one can have God as a father who does not have the church as a mother. Now, John Calvin quotes Cyprian and refers to the imagery and the reality of motherhood of the church throughout his institutes. For the Orthodox, however, this phrase means something very specific. Salvation is synergistic and sacramental, and most importantly, it is church-focused. And so when talking about synergism, once again, one needs to be careful not to read it into the controversy between Catholics and Protestants concerning the faith and works dichotomy. Their notion of salvation may be best understood as an ongoing journey, one that takes place in the context of the church. And so in their view, salvation starts with the sacrament of baptism, where participants are regenerated and cleansed from the effects of ancestral sin. And so with the sacrament of chrismation, participants receive the Holy Spirit and start their journey in the context of the church. It is there where they confess their sins and receive forgiveness through the sacrament of confession, and most importantly, receive Jesus Christ in his nourishment and strength for their journey through their participant in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Now, being on a journey, the only thing they can claim for their state of salvation is this, that they're on a journey. In that context, there is no real place for any understanding of salvation that includes justification by faith alone and no space for assurance and certainly uh, of one's status before God. These are significant and non-negotiable points of departure from a biblical understanding of faith and assurance. Now, the Eastern Orthodox understanding of the centrality of the church can be useful and even a needed challenge to us as evangelicals. As many times, we tend to have a very individualistic understanding of salvation in which the church plays a peripheral and even an optional role. Now, on the other hand, Eastern Orthodox uh, understanding of church in which the church is identified solely and exclusively with only one visible expression of it, namely the Orthodox one, presents an insurmountable obstacle to meaningful interaction. Moreover, the lack of emphasis on crucial Protestant and Reformed doctrines, just as the priesthood of the believer, the justification by faith alone, and mongerism that God is the initiator and the one who saves, results in a very different sort of religious experience that tends towards a very synergistic understanding of salvation, with no sense of certainty and assurance, empty ritualism, and uh, the authority of the church and church officers. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. I hope that it's been helpful for your life and godliness. And until next week, may God bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. 
If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org. 